0: chapter four section three of the promise of american life by herbert crawley this librivox recording is in the public domain recorded by the progressing america project chapter four section three lincoln as more than an american lincoln's services to his country may have been rewarded with such abundant appreciation that it may seem superfluous to insist upon them once again but i believe that from the point of view of this book an even higher value may be placed, if not upon his patriotic service, at least upon his personal worth. The Union might well have been saved, and slavery extinguished, without his assistance, but the life of no other American has revealed with anything like the same completeness, the peculiar moral promise of genuine democracy. He shows us by the full but unconscious integrity of his example, the kind of human excellence which a political and social democracy may and should fashion— and its most grateful and hopeful aspect is not merely that there is something partially american about the manner of his excellence but that it can be fairly compared with the classic types of consummate personal distinction to all appearance nobody could have been more than abraham lincoln a man of his own time and place until eighteen fifty eight his outer life ran much in the same groove as that of hundreds of other western politicians and lawyers beginning as a poor and ignorant boy even less provided with props and stepping-stones than were his associates, he had worked his way to a position of ordinary professional and political distinction. He was not, like Douglas, a brilliant success. He was not, like Grant, an apparently hopeless failure. He had achieved as much and as little as hundreds of others had achieved. He was respected by his neighbors as an honest man and as a competent lawyer. They credited him with ability but not to any extraordinary extent. No one would have pointed him out as a remarkable and distinguished man. He had shown himself to be desirous of recognition and influence, but ambition had not been the compelling motive of his life. In most respects his ideas, interests, and standards were precisely the same as those of his associates. He accepted with them the fabric of traditional American political thought, and the ordinary standards of contemporary political morality he had none of the moral strenuousness of the reformer, none of the exclusiveness of a man, whose purposes and ideas were consciously perched higher than those of his neighbors. Probably the majority of his more successful associates classed him as a good and able man, who was somewhat lacking in ambition and had too much of a disposition to loaf. He was most at home, not in his own house, but in the corner grocery store, where he would sit with his feet on the stove swapping stories with his friends and if an English traveler of 1850 had happened in on the group, he would most assuredly have discovered another instance of the distressing vulgarity, to which the absence of an hereditary aristocracy and an established church condemned the American democracy. Thus no man could apparently have been more the average product of his day and generation. Nevertheless, at bottom, abraham lincoln differed as essentially from the ordinary western american of the middle period as saint francis of assisi differed from the ordinary benedictine monk of the thirteenth century the average western american of lincoln's generation was fundamentally a man who subordinated his intelligence to certain dominant practical interests and purposes he was far from being a stupid or slow-witted man on the contrary His wits had been sharpened by the traffic of American politics and business, and his mind was shrewd, flexible, and alert. But he was wholly incapable either of disinterested or of concentrated intellectual exertion. His energies were bent in the conquest of certain stubborn external forces, and he used his intelligence almost exclusively to this end. The struggles, the hardships, and the necessary self-denial of pioneer life, constituted an admirable training of the will. It developed a body of men with great resolution of purpose, and the great ingenuity and fertility in adapting their insufficient means to the realization of their important business affairs. But their almost exclusive preoccupation with practical tasks, and their failure to grant their intelligence any room for independent exercise, bent them into exceedingly warped and one-sided human beings. Lincoln, on the contrary, much as he was a man of his own time and people, was precisely an example of high and disinterested intellectual culture. During all the formative years in which his life did not superficially differ from that of his associates, he was, in point of fact, using every chance which the material of Western life afforded, to discipline and inform his mind. These materials were not very abundant, and in the use which he proceeded to make of them, Lincoln had no assistance, either from a sound tradition or from a better educated master." On the contrary, as the history of the times shows, there was every temptation for a man with a strong intellectual bent to be betrayed into mere extravagance and aberration. But with the sound instinct of a well-balanced intelligence, Lincoln seized upon the three available books, the earnest study of which might best help to develop harmoniously a strong and many-sided intelligence. He seized, that is, upon the Bible, Shakespeare, and Euclid. To his contemporaries, the Bible was, for the most part, a fountain of fanatic revivalism, and Shakespeare, if anything, a mine of quotations. But in the case of Lincoln, Shakespeare and the Bible served, not merely to awaken his taste and fashion his style, but also to liberate his literary and moral imagination. At the same time, he was training his powers of thought by the assiduous study of algebra and geometry. The absorbing hours he spent over his Euclid were apparently of no use to him in his profession, but Lincoln was, in his way, an intellectual gymnast and enjoyed the exertion for his own sake. Such a use of his leisure might have seemed a sheer waste of time to his more practical friends, and they might well have accounted for his comparative lack of success by his indulgence in such secret and useless pastimes. Neither would this criticism have been beside the mark, for if Lincoln's great energy and powers of work had been devoted exclusively to practical ends he might well have become in the early days a more prominent lawyer and politician than he actually was but he preferred the satisfaction of his own intellectual and social instincts and so qualified himself for achievements beyond the power of a douglas in addition however to these private gymnastics lincoln shared with his neighbors a public and popular source of intellectual and human insight the western pioneers for all their exclusive devotion to practical purposes, wasted a good deal of time on apparently useless social intercourse. In the middle-western towns of that day there was, as we have seen, an extraordinary amount of good fellowship, which was quite the most wholesome and humanizing thing, which entered into the lines of these hard-working and hard-featured men. The whole male countryside was, in its way, a club, and when the presence of women did not make them awkward and sentimental, the men let themselves loose in an amount of rough pleasantry and free conversation, which added the one genial and liberating touch to their lives. This club life of his own people Lincoln enjoyed, and shared much more than did his average neighbor. He passed the greater part of what he would have called his leisure time, in swapping with his friends stories, in which the genial and humorous side of Western life was embodied. Doubtless his domestic unhappiness had much to do with his vagrancy, but his native instinct for the wholesome and illuminating aspect of the life around him brought him more frequently than any other cause to the club of loafers in the general store. And whatever the promiscuous conversation and the racy yarns meant to his associates, they meant vastly more to Lincoln. His hours of social vagrancy really completed the process of his intellectual training. It relieved his culture from the taint of bookishness. It gave substance to his humor— It humanized his wisdom and enabled him to express it in a familiar and dramatic form. It placed at his disposal, that is, the great classic vehicle of popular expression, which is the parable and the spoken word. Of course, it was just because he shared so completely the amusements and the occupations of his neighbors, that his private personal culture had no embarrassing effects. Neither he nor his neighbors were in the least aware, that he had been placed thereby in a different intellectual class no doubt this loneliness and sadness of his personal life may be partly explained by a dumb sense of difference from his fellows and no doubt this very loneliness and sadness intensified the mental preoccupation which was both the sign and the result of his personal culture but his unconsciousness of his own distinction as well as his regular participation in political and professional practice kept his will as firm and vigorous as if he were really no more than a man of action his natural steadiness of purpose had been toughened in the beginning by the hardships and struggles which he shared with his neighbors and his self-imposed intellectual discipline in no way impaired the stability of his character because his personal culture never alienated him from his neighbors and threw him into a consciously critical frame of mind the time which he spent in intellectual diversion may have diminished to some extent his practical efficiency previous to the gathering crisis it certainly made him less inclined to the aggressive self-assertion which a successful political career demanded but when the crisis came When the minds of northern patriots were stirred by the ugly alternative offered to them by the South, and when Lincoln was, by the course of events, restored to active participation in politics, he soon showed that he had reached the highest of all objects of personal culture. While still remaining one of a body of men who, all unconsciously, impoverished their minds in order to increase the momentum of their practical energy— he nonetheless achieved for himself a mutually helpful relation between a firm will and a luminous intelligence. The training of his mind, the awakening of his imagination, the formation of his taste and style, the humorous dramatizing of his experience, all this discipline had failed to pervert his character, narrow his sympathies, or undermine his purposes. His intelligence served to enlighten his will, and his will, to establish the mature decisions of his intelligence— late in life the two faculties became in their exercise almost indistinguishable his judgments in so far as they were decisive were charged with momentum and his actions were instinct with sympathy and understanding just because his actions were instinct with sympathy and understanding lincoln was certainly the most humane statesman who ever guided a nation through a great crisis He always regarded other men and acted towards them, not merely as the embodiment of an erroneous or harmful idea, but as human beings, capable of better things. And consequently, all of his thoughts and actions looked in the direction of a higher level of human association. It is this characteristic which makes him a better and, be it hoped, a more prophetic democrat than any other national American leader." His peculiar distinction does not consist in the fact that he was a man of the people, who passed from the condition of splitting rails to the condition of being president. No doubt he was in this respect, as good a Democrat as you please, and no doubt it was desirable that he should be this kind of a Democrat. But many other Americans could be named who were also men of the people, and who passed from the most insignificant to the most honored positions of American life. Lincoln's peculiar and permanent distinction as a Democrat, will depend rather upon the fact that his thoughts and his actions looked towards the realization of the highest and most edifying democratic ideal. Whatever his theories were, he showed by his general outlook and behavior that democracy meant more to him than anything else, the spirit and principle of brotherhood. He was the foremost to deny liberty to the South, and he had his sensible doubts about the equality between the Negro and the white man, but he actually treated everybody, the Southern rebel— the negro slave the northern deserter the personal enemy in a just and kindly spirit neither was this kindliness merely an instance of ordinary american amiability and good nature it was the result not of superficial feeling which could be easily ruffled but of his personal moral and intellectual discipline he had made for himself a second nature compact of insight and loving-kindness it must be remembered also that this higher humanity resided in a man who was the human instrument partly responsible, for an awful amount of slaughter and human anguish. He was not the only commander-in-chief of a great army, which fought a long and bloody war, but he was the statesman who insisted that, if necessary, the war should be fought. His mental attitude was dictated by a mixture of practical common sense with genuine human insight, and it is just this mixture which makes him so rare a man and, be it hoped, so prophetic a democrat he could at one and the same moment order his countrymen to be killed for seeking to destroy the american nation and forgive them for their error his kindliness and his brotherly feeling did not lead him after the manner of jefferson to shirk the necessity and duty of national defense neither did it lead him after the manner of william lloyd garrison to advocate non-resistance while at the same time arousing in his fellow-countrymen a spirit of fratricidal warfare. In the midst of that hideous civil contest which was provoked, perhaps unnecessarily, by hatred, irresponsibility, passion, and disloyalty, and which has been the fruitful cause of national disloyalty down to the present day, Lincoln did not for a moment cherish a bitter or unjust feeling against the national enemies. The southerners, filled as they were with a passionate democratic devotion to their own interests and liberties, abused Lincoln until they really came to believe that he was a military tyrant, yet he never failed to treat them in a fair and forgiving spirit. When he was assassinated, it was the South, as well as the American nation, which had lost its best friend, because he alone among the Republican leaders had the wisdom to see that the divided house could only be restored by justice and kindness and if there are any defects in its restoration today, they are chiefly due to the baleful spirit of injustice and hatred which the republicans took over from the abolitionists his superiority to his political associates in constructive statesmanship is measured by his superiority in personal character there are many men who are able to forgive the enemies of their country but there are few who can forgive their personal enemies I need not rehearse the well-known instances of Lincoln's magnanimity. He not only cherished no resentment against men who had intentionally, and even maliciously, injured him, but he seems at times to have gone out of his way to do them a service. This is, perhaps, his greatest distinction. Lincoln's magnanimity is the final proof of the completeness of his self-discipline. The quality of being magnanimous is both the consummate virtue, and the one which is least natural. It was certainly far from being natural among Lincoln's own people. Americans of his time were generally of the opinion that it was dishonorable to overlook a personal injury. They considered it weak and unmanly not to quarrel with another man a little harder than he quarreled with you. The pioneer was good-natured and kindly, but he was aggressive, quick-tempered, unreasonable, and utterly devoid of personal discipline. A slighter an insult to his personality became in his eyes a moral wrong which must be cherished and avenged and which relieved him of any obligation to be just or kind to his enemy many conspicuous illustrations of this quarrelsome spirit are to be found in the political life of the middle period which indeed cannot be understood without constantly falling back upon the influence of lively personal resentments every prominent politician cordially disliked or hated a certain number of his political adversaries and associates and his public actions were often dictated by a purpose either to injure these men or to get ahead of them after the retirement of jackson these enmities and resentments came to have a smaller influence but a man's right and duty to quarrel with anybody who in his opinion had done him an injury was unchallenged, and was virtually considered to be the necessary accompaniment of American democratic virility. As I have intimated above, Andrew Jackson was the most conspicuous example of this quarrelsome spirit, and for this reason, he is wholly inferior to Lincoln as a type of democratic manhood. Jackson has many admirable qualities, and on the whole he served his country well. He also was a man of the people, who understood and represented the mass of his fellow countrymen, and who played the part, according to his lights, of a courageous and independent political leader. He also loved and defended the Union. But with all his excellence, he should never be held up as a model to American youth. The world was divided into his personal friends and followers, and his personal enemies, and he was eager to do the latter an injury as he was to do the former a service." His quarrels were not petty, because Jackson was, on the whole, a big rather than a little man, but they were fierce and they were for the most part irreconcilable. They bulk so large in his life that they cannot be overlooked. They stamp him a type of the vindictive man, without personal discipline, just as Lincoln's behavior toward Stanton, Chase, and others stamps him a type of the man who has achieved magnanimity. He is the kind of national hero the admiring imitation of whom can do nothing but good. Lincoln had abandoned the illusion of his own peculiar personal importance. He had become profoundly and sincerely humble, and his humility was as far as possible from being either a conventional pose or a matter of nervous self distrust. It did not impair the firmness of his will, it did not betray him into shirking responsibilities. Although only a country lawyer without executive experience, he did not flinch from assuming the leadership of a great nation in one of the greatest crises of its national history from becoming commander-in-chief of an army of a million men and from spending three billion dollars in the prosecution of a war his humility that is was precisely an example of moral vitality and insight rather than of moral awkwardness and enfeeblement it was the fruit of reflection on his own personal experience the supreme instance of his ability to attain moral truth both in discipline and in idea, and in its aspect of a moral truth it obtained a more explicit expression than did some other of his finer personal attributes. His practice of cherishing and repeating the plaintive little verses which inquire monotonously, whether the spirit of mortal has any right to be proud, indicates the depth and the highly conscious character of his fundamental moral conviction. He is not only humble himself, but he feels and declares that men have no right to be anything but humble, and he thereby enters into possession of the most fruitful and the most universal of all religious ideas. Lincoln's humility, no less than his liberal intelligence and his magnanimous disposition, is more democratic than it is American, but in this, as in so many other cases, his personal moral dignity and his peculiar moral insight did not separate him from his associates. Like them, he wanted professional success, public office, and the ordinary rewards of American life, and like them, he bears no trace of political or moral purism. But, unlike them, he was not the intellectual and moral victim of his own purposes and ambitions, and unlike them, his life is a tribute to the sincerity and depth of his moral insight. He could never have become a national leader by the ordinary road of insistent and clamorous self-assertion. Had he not been restored to public life by the crisis, he would have remained in all probability a comparatively obscure and a wholly undervalued man. But the political ferment of 1856 and the threat of ruin overhanging the American Union pushed him again onto the political highway, and once there, his years of intellectual discipline enabled him to play a leading and a decisive part. His personality obtained momentum, direction, and increasing dignity from its identification with great issues and events. He became the individual instrument whereby an essential and salutary national purpose was fulfilled, and the instrument was admirably effective, precisely because it had been silently and unconsciously tempered, and formed for high achievement. Issue as he was of a society in which the cheap tool, whether mechanical or personal, was the immediately successful tool, he had, nonetheless— labored long in the making of a consummate individual instrument. Some of my readers may protest that I have overemphasized the difference between Lincoln and his contemporary fellow countrymen. In order to exalt the leader, have I not too much disparaged the followers? Well, a comparison of this kind always involves the risk of unfairness, but if there is much truth in the foregoing estimate of Lincoln, the lessons of the comparison are worth its inevitable risk. The ordinary interpretation of Lincoln as a consummate Democrat, and a man of the people, was implied that he was, like Jackson, simply a bigger and a better version of the plain American citizen, and it is just this interpretation which I have sought to deny and to expose. In many respects he was, of course, very much like his neighbors and associates. He accepted everything wholesome and useful in their life and behavior. He shared their good fellowship, their strength of will, their excellent faith, and above all their innocence, and he could never have served his country so well, or reached as high a level of personal dignity, in case he had not been good natured and strong and innocent. But as all commentators have noted, he was not only good natured, strong, and innocent, he had made himself intellectually candid, concentrated, and disinterested, and morally humane, magnanimous, and humble. All these qualities, which were the very flower of his personal life, were not possessed either by the average or the exceptional American of his day, and not only were they not possessed, but they were either wholly ignored or consciously undervalued. Yet these very qualities of high intelligence, humanity, magnanimity, and humility are precisely the qualities which Americans, in order to become better Democrats, should add to their strength, their homogeneity, and their innocence while at the same time they are just the qualities which americans are prevented by their individualistic practice and tradition from attaining or properly valuing their deepest convictions make the average unintelligent man the representative democrat and the aggressive successful individual the admirable national type and in conformity with these convictions their uppermost ideas in respect to lincoln are that he was a man of the people and an example of strong will he was both of these things but his great distinction is that he was also something vastly more and better. He cannot be fully understood and properly valued as a national hero, without an implicit criticism of those traditional convictions. Such a criticism he himself did not and could not make. In case he had made it, he could never have achieved his great political task and his great personal triumph. But other times bring other needs— it is as desirable to day that the criticism should be made explicit as it was that Lincoln himself in his day should preserve the innocence and integrity of a unique unconscious example. End of chapter four.